0: Well, hello, Heritage! I want to welcome all of you, including those at our Bettendorf and QC West locations, as well as those of you joining us online. My name is Sean, and this beautiful woman sitting next to me is my wife, Beth. It's been fun having you up here. Um, This is week three of a four-week journey where we're looking to understand what drives us as a church, what compels us, our core values. And so two weeks ago, we started talking about how we live loved. And then last weekend, Justin helped us understand how we live linked. And if you've missed either one of those, you can find them at heritageqc.com under the media tab. But this weekend, we're stepping into how we live sent. And I've asked Beth to help us do that. But before she does, I want to take a moment to frame a bit of our journey and some of the realities before us as a church. The, The Quad Cities is my home. It's our home. We live here. But it is also our primary mission field as a church. There are roughly 400,000 people that make up the Quad Cities, and about 200,000 of them are currently not walking in the hope and love and life that Jesus has to offer. But our God has positioned us as a church very uniquely to help facilitate the process of seeing that changed by His power at work within us. In fact, we are one church in many locations. And if you've got a sermon note guide and you see a block there to draw in, I want to encourage you not to draw what I'm about to draw in that block, but rather to save that space for what is to come from the lovely lady over there. But with that in mind, if this is the Mississippi River... We here in the Quad Cities, and specifically Heritage Church, one church, many locations. We, we have our Bettendorf campus. We have our QC West campus. We've got Rock Island and, and Vita Nueva. These four locations make up our launching point. These are our outposts for reaching this region. But as we continue to grow and expand, we're going to multiply. And we're going to multiply into new places to reach more and more of the 200,000 people who don't yet know Jesus. God's positioned us to do that. And we're talking about how we live loved and how when we live linked, those two things inherently lead to living sent. Because when we live like that, then God is able to reach these cities and beyond. Living loved and linked and sent is not a random concept. It's not even a new concept. It's actually Jesus' model for how we accomplish the mission that God has given us. We're created to live that way. And as a church, we cry out to God. We we cry out to Him to make sure that we are walking in step with Him as we explore new ways of reaching the 200,000 people. We know that those methods or steps will always involve multiplying disciples and leaders in churches. But we're trying to lean into new ways to do that. And we understand that we can't simply keep doing what we've been doing and think that we're going to reach the 200,000. We actually have to lean into new endeavors, new opportunities, remove the limits, remove the obstacles to go even further with the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, one of the limiting factors for us is how we view our investments. It was about two weeks ago I introduced a concept of moving from a multiple fund paradigm as a church to one fund. That with one vision, we can more simply and effectively accomplish the one mission that God has given us. Now, that'll take time to do that. It may take months, maybe even years, but I want to take a moment to clarify the concept. See, when I talk about that, I'm not talking about looking to stop the different investments, investments that we're making, but rather to stop looking at those investments as separate or distant from one another to stop looking at them as disconnected or mutually exclusive. See, let's do this, for example. Think of missions. We commonly, when we think of missions, we're talking about faith promise, we're talking about special projects or special needs, and we often, historically, in our context, think of missions as a piece of the pie. If we look at the church as a pie, here's missions, here's children's ministry, here's youth ministry, and missions is just one of the pieces to consider in the the life of the church. But that's not God's design mission is everything we do. In fact, a better analogy would be to say that missions is the crust of that pie, that it's above and below and around. In, in children's ministry, it's above and below and around. In youth ministry, it's above and below and around. It's in every expression that we do. And in healthy churches, missions is that comprehensive. It drives us And it only makes sense to align our funding realities to reflect that reality to more effectively accomplish the one mission with one vision. Now, I know when you're talking about growth and expanding, that always brings change. And and the deal is we can't expect to keep doing what we've been doing and think that we're going to get different results. In in most organizations, what gets an organization to one level is not the thing that will get it to the next level. In reality, most of the time, the thing that gets an organization to grow to one point will ultimately become the limiting factor for it going to the next level. That's why change will always be a part, in all of its complexities and challenges, will always be a part of growth. And when a church or an organization stops changing and growing, it immediately starts dying. And we don't want that. God has done amazing things in and through our fifth, nearly 50-year journey as a church. But it's just the beginning. He's not done. 200,000 people just in our local context that we're supposed to live loved and linked and sent in a manner to reach them, that God can transform them. One of the most exciting things that's coming on our horizon, the things that, one of the things I see God doing is related to uh, Vida Nueva. Uh, last weekend, we heard from Pastor Ben just sharing his heart for the Hispanics of the Quad Cities. And he asked us as a church family to come alongside the Vida Nueva family and to pray, to, to ask God how to reach the 15,000 Hispanics that live in the Quad Cities. And if you've been praying, I want to say thank you. Th- continue to pray. Because one of the things that we have heard from God, and we're seeing it affirmed and confirmed, is that God is asking Vida Nueva to make a strategic move. ...to reposition into the Hispanic Corridor. You see, in the Quad Cities, there's a place that we call the Hispanic Corridor... ...that runs across the northern edge of Rock Island, Moline, and towards East Moline. And it contains... It's the location that has the vast majority of the 15,000 Hispanics living in it. And what God is asking us, and specifically Vida Nueva, to do... ...is to reposition into that corridor to reach those people. It's exciting. It's a bit daunting but it makes sense. See, when we're talking about living sent, at the core of what sent is, we're talking about being with. Just like Jesus, as Jesus was sent by God to be Emmanuel, God with us, being sent is to go and be with. It's not going out and coming back. It's going and being with. And Vida Nueva is not able to most effectively do that from the Rock Island location. And so what God is doing in this crazy cool way is positioning them to move strategically into the place where they can love and link and be sent in those communities and start a multiplication movement just within the corridor. It's exciting. There's a few more things that I can't wait to share with you. I'm looking forward even next weekend with Pastor Ben to share just a bit more of what we see God doing. But for now, what I'm asking is that you continue to pray that we would continue to have the wisdom and the mind of God as we seek Him, seeking to live sent the way He wants us to. We, we want to live loved and linked, but we want to live sent the way He wants us to do that. So please continue to pray. We need that for us as a church, but also as individuals. If we're going to live sent the way He wants us, we have to understand the nuances of what that means. And that's kind of why I'm excited about what today is. We have an opportunity to step into God's Word for a few moments and understand how we live sent. And I've got to admit, I'm probably a little bit biased that Beth is coming to bring the Word but I know what is on her heart. I've heard her deliver it. And I, I know that it is the word of God. And I know that she has the mind of God and the passion that God has in this area. And it's been fun having you up here. It's been great. I, got, I get to worship my God with a family I love, with a woman I love. It's awesome. But I want to take a moment. I want to pray. I invite you to pray with me for Beth, but also to pray for us as a church family that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear what God is asking us to do as a people who are already sent so let's take a moment and pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity to gather and worship. I thank you for Jesus. I thank you that in him we can live loved and linked and ultimately sent. And I pray as we spend a few moments trying to understand more fully what that means, I pray that you would speak. You would speak through your word. You would speak through your Holy Spirit. You would speak through your servant, Beth. And that we would leave here, all every one of us, all of us, better position to bring you glory and honor as a people on mission sent by you in the name of your son Jesus I pray these things in his name amen
1: I am so excited to get to be with you in this way and to get to bring this message to you Um, The last two weeks, we've been talking about living loved and living linked. And this week, we're really drilling down on what it means to live sent. And so, um, against my better judgment, I'm going to start with the drawing and get it out of the way. You may use your box if you want to. Um, I've been told I'm a little like Picasso because nobody's quite sure what I'm drawing. I was told that my world last time looked like a penny, so you be the judge. But here we are, week one. Sean talked about God is love and God loves, and Justin talked last week about the reality of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit making mankind male and female to reflect the image of the Godhead. And so in that imago day, in that deep-seated um, value that is in all of us, we find the dignity, the value, the inherent value that is in each person and the reality that just as God had community in the beginning, so are we created with that need for community. And so God made man, and we're designed to live linked in community. God created the world People, this is the world, I'm telling you. Okay, that's the world. God made the world. He put man in it, and what did he say? It is good, and it was good. And in the Garden of Eden, things were as they ought to be. There was an oughtness and a rightness to life. And then something terrible happened. Sin entered the world, and the wages of sin is death. And so a blood sacrifice was made and God killed some animals, took the skins and clothed Adam and Eve because for the first time they were naked and they were ashamed. And then the arc of the story continues throughout the Old Testament that when sin was committed and sin separates us in relationship with God, a sacrifice must be made to rectify that. Until God so loved the world, the good news of John 3.16, that he gave his one and only son so that we could be justified. We could be made just as if we never sinned. We could be made just, not because of what we did, but because of what he did. If you are spiritually unresolved today, this is it. This is the heart of the gospel. God sent Jesus to be the ultimate sacrifice because he loves you. He desires relationship with you. His love knows no ends. But you know what? God is love and God is just. And because God is a just God and it is part of his character as much as love is, He had to send his son to be the perfect sacrifice. There was no way around that. And then in John 20, 21, Jesus says the audacity to say this to his people. He says, as the Father has sent me, so am I sending you. That's a pretty tall order. That those two letters, as, in the same way that Jesus was sent, to be the sacrifice for us, to lay down his life for us, in that same way, we are sent. And what are we sent to do? We're sent to be his ambassadors. Sean talked about this concept of being an ambassador a few months ago, and he reminded us that an ambassador, when an ambassador goes somewhere, an ambassador of the United States goes to the country of Nigeria and has a meeting with the president there. It is as though the president of the United States is sitting in that room. And that's what Jesus is calling us to. Jesus is calling us to be sent as his ambassadors of hope and justice and shalom and peace. And love, and we get to do all of that. That is the cool, exciting piece of this justice thread that runs throughout the gospel. The gospel is God working his restorative justice for all people. Sean reminded us in week one, and this is your first fill in in your sermon notes guide the church doesn't have a mission, the mission has a church. And if we would look at our mission and see it to be our mission, As the church, we get to take the whole gospel to the whole person, to the whole world. But here's the challenge. Too often, we are only focused on what the gospel means for us. We lose our sentness. The reality is, an ambassador is not an ambassador if they stay at home. You have to go somewhere to be an ambassador. So if we're gonna really live sent, We've got to go, and we don't, don't go to, we go to be with. You know, this this thread of justice, it requires us to maybe recalibrate our vision a little bit in how we look at the world and understand what's happening. Um, in my own journey, I'm indebted to Ken Witzma and Eugene Cho and Dr. Jerry Brishers, people who have who have taught me, who I've learned from, who I've been able to sit with and ask questions from. And, and so these concepts are not just mine, they're something that I've gleaned and been taught and I'm so eager to get to unpack with all of you. We look at the world in tension. We have two lenses that we look at the world with. One is the lens of justice, and primary justice is what ought to be. It's what should have been. If we could think of the Garden of Eden and say that symbolizes primary justice, that's what should have been. But the reality is that we look at the world with another lens, and this is the lens of truth. Truth is what is. It's our reality. And oftentimes, there's a pretty big gap between justice, what ought to be, and the truth of what is. And that's what we call injustice. And that's kind of the, the world that we live in. When we look around, we see, man, this, this seems like it should be different. It seems like this would be right, but, but this is what is, and there's a pretty big gap in those things. I think too often our definition of justice stops with this concept of punitive justice. Punitive justice is the consequence for breaking justice. It's an eye for an eye, It's it's the consequence of violating primary justice in our own culture and context. When someone commits a crime and they go to jail and they serve the time, what is the common phrase that we use to refer to that? We say, justice is served. And there's a degree to which that is true but it's just a piece, it's just a sliver, it's just like a glimpse of justice. It, it isn't the whole, the whole package of what justice really is. Restorative justice, this is what we get to experience in the gospel and be a part of. This is the process of seeking restoration. It's making amends. It's where things are brought back into alignment to what they ought to have been. It's where we look at something that's happening in the world and we say, That looks like the kingdom of God. That looks like something that God would be pleased at. That looks like a reflection of God's heart. Restorative justice. The gospel is God working. His restorative justice for people. 2 Corinthians 5 unpacks this really well for us. And so we're gonna spend some time in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 18 through 21. I encourage you to turn there in your Bibles, get there on your device. It's gonna be up on the screen as well, and it's in your sermon note guide. All of this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness or the justice of God. All right. There's some things I want to unpack from here. The first is that that God has given to us the message of reconciliation. This message of the restoration that is possible because of Christ, he's given it to us and we get to be his ambassadors. We get to be, it is like if you think of someone that you know that doesn't know Jesus, it is as though you are bringing Christ into that room to say we implore you on Christ's behalf. There's an urgency to that that I think so often we have drifted from. We really, I think a lot of times we've just settled into our own salvation and we've settled into what the gospel means for us and we've lost the urgency to, when was the last time you implored someone to be reconciled to God. This is his heart. Reconciliation is about salvation, but it's about restoration. It's about not getting what we deserve. It's about the grace, the unmerited favor that says, you know what, you deserve death, but guess what, I give you life. So I wanna unpack this verse 21 a little bit. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness or the justice of God. Okay, in the Old Testament, you will find justice and righteousness go hand in glove. They fit together. You can hardly find one without the other. And justice is all over the Old Testament. Isaiah 117, seek justice, encourage the oppressed, defend the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. It is God's heart. And then you get to the New Testament and you can't really find that word and it's a little bit confusing. And so I did some digging around on this and here's what I found. In the Old Testament, the words used for righteousness and justice were mishpat and tzedakah and they meant doing righteousness and doing right and being just and doing justice. And the being and the doing went together. They fit together like this. Well, when the New Testament was translated from the Greek, the word was dikaiosune. And, and the translators made a decision that they were going to take that word, which meant the same thing that justice and righteousness used to mean and were synonyms, and only translate it as righteousness. And so that's the word that we see when we read it throughout the New Testament. But the reality is, if you look at what dikaiosune means, it means justice, and righteousness, it's both. It's the same relationship that we see throughout the Old Testament. And so we could read verse 21 and see that we are being given the opportunity to become the justice of God. The goal of justice is reconciliation. It is not engagement with an issue. I think sometimes we think about justice and we winnow it down to a thing. We winnow it down to an issue of injustice. But the reality is, the goal is reconciliation. Justin talked last week about our need to live linked in relationship. And the reality is, is that that's messy. It's hard to do that well. But our relationships are meant to be characterized by shalom which is justice and fairness and harmony and flourishing, but it doesn't happen because of sin, because sin creates a relational debt between us. Sin fractures us and breaks us in ways that make it hard for us to live out what ought to be in relationship. The goal of justice is to be an agent of healing in the fractures and brokenness around us. Sometimes, though, I think it's hard for us to see the gaps. I think it's sometimes we've, we've hunkered down and we're in our Christian bunkers and we've insulated ourselves from the injustice around us and the gaps and we can't even see them. Or other times I think we're so far living in a gap and living in a tension that we just can't see anything else. And so there's a place in your notes for you to just jot down some of the things that I'm going to talk about. And I want you to just kind of sit with it and say, how is the Holy Spirit speaking to me about what some of these gaps are? One of the first gaps and fractures that jumps out to me in our culture and society is the gap between men and women. And this too started back in the garden when Adam said, that woman you gave me, she's the reason why sin entered the world, by the way, Lord, just so you know. And so we live with a fracture and gap between men and women, which contributes to pornography, and strip clubs and prostitution and domestic violence and rape and the divorce rate. It is everywhere, that gap between men and women, that us and them that exists on both sides of that relationship. Here's another gap, children and parents, our foster care system is unbelievably broken. There are 153 million orphans in the world today. the tension between black and white. You can't pick up a newspaper and not read about Ferguson, Missouri. If you are oblivious to the idea of white privilege and you have never exercised it on behalf of someone who needs you to use your voice in that way, it is highly likely that you are living oblivious to the gap that still exists between black and white, between the undocumented and the documented and the conversation about the need for immigration reform in our country, the poor and the rich, the have and the have not, the vilification that has happened between Muslims and Christians on both sides of that spectrum. We are called to step into those gaps, into those fractures, and be the bridge to facilitate reconciliation. If this is going to happen, we've got to be willing to lay down our life as Christ did, to put aside our rights so that in losing our life, we might find life to the full. 1 John 3, 17 talks about it this way. If someone has money enough to live well and sees a brother or sister in need, but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? We're gonna look at a continuum here. And the reality is that we all fall somewhere on this continuum between empathy and apathy. Between compassion and objectification. Between justice and injustice. Empathy is where you have the ability to identify with someone so strongly that it is as if that thing is happening to you or to someone you love and you immediately have a care and a connection to it. And apathy is just indifference. It's just, there's no connection. Compassion is where empathy propels you into a response. I must do something. And so compassion is the response that comes out of empathy. And objectification is what happens when we totally strip a person of their imago day, when we remove their value, their dignity, their need for community, and they become an object. My friends, I wonder if pornography would be such an issue, if we could have empathy and compassion for that image that we see on the screen, that person, because it's not an object, it's a person that we're exploiting, that we're abusing, that we're commodifying. Justice and injustice, there's a great way, a great visual picture that I wanna give you on this. David Batstone, the founder of Not For Sale, talks about empathy and compassion and justice, and this is the word picture he uses. If you are standing on the banks of a rushing river, the mighty Mississippi, you're standing on the banks of it and you, you hear a cry, and it sounds like a child's cry, you immediately go on alert and you start looking to see what's happening. And, and sure enough, you see, you see a small child drowning in the river. What, what would you do? I mean, hopefully you're going to feel some sense of, if that were my child, I would want somebody to do something. And I don't see anybody else around here, so I'm going to do something. And you start looking around and try to figure out what could you do? What is your response going to be to that need that you see in front of you? And you would find a way to rescue that child. But here's the thing. While you're in the river rescuing that child, there's two more that come. And you get that one child out, and you haul yourself back up on the banks of the river, and, and you see there, there's three more and four more, and you have to make the decision, I can only get one, and so you go after the one. And you do that as long as you possibly can. And then your compassion, its drained. you just can't do anything else physically. And this is where justice comes in. Justice takes a step back from that and says, why are these children drowning in this river? and says, I need to go upstream and do the hard work to go to the source of the problem and find out why these children are ending up in the river. Because I can stand here all day and pull kids out of the river and I'm not gonna save them all. But justice says, I'm gonna go to the source. Eugene Peterson talks about it this way. He says, the victims of injustice do not need our spasms of compassion. They need our long obedience in the direction of justice. And my friends, justice has no finish line. There is always gonna be work for us to do, but there needs to be more of us who are engaged in the hard work of fighting for justice. Here's my concern for us as the people of God, his church. I'm afraid that we wanna be loved more than we want to love, that we want to have friends more than we desire to be one, we want to live according to our own terms more than we are willing to lay down our lives for others. We want justice for us more than we want justice for others. Micah Bornet, a spoken word artist, has a great artistic piece called Is Justice Worth It? And I want to direct your attention to the screens as we kind of take that in and then we'll come back and talk some more.
2: A lot of people see justice as the most futile thing you can do with your life. Give your life completely to business, and you see the money piling up. Be a health nut, eat right, go to the gym, and your muscles will grow, and your body will look good, and you'll see results. But when it comes to justice, it seems like you just can't get ahead. You patch up one hole and something else rips open. You bring peace to one region and war breaks out in another. You rebuild after an earthquake and a tsunami hits. And you work, and you work, and you work, and there's never any profit. There's no bank where you can store a surplus amount of justice in. Stability is never permanent. Something always tips and people always ask, is it even worth it? And that question though understandable, it's, I mean, quite frankly, it's ridiculous. And it rarely comes from those who are actually tired from pursuing justice and not just tired of the idea. It rarely comes from people who've labored for years and have good reason to ask it. And you know why they never ask? Those type of people become friends with those who suffer. Family even. Because it's one thing to wonder if someone else's freedom is worth fighting for. But when you begin to identify with that someone else, commune with them, that's when the question is no longer worth asking. That's when it becomes offensive even. What do you mean, is it worth my time? That doesn't even deserve an answer. I don't care how long it takes. I don't care how many times you fail. I don't care how little progress is made. You never stop fighting for your own.
1: That's right, woo! You never stop fighting for your own. How are you drawing your circle? Who makes it into your own? As long as there is an us and a them, there is going to be a gap. There is going to be a fracture. There is going to be brokenness. I want to make this really practical for us as a church family. We're talking about Vida Nueva going down into the corridor where there are roughly 15,000 Hispanics. Is that a us and a them thing? Is that us sending them to them? Or are we doing that? Here's the injustice issue that they're gonna wrestle with. The estimates are that 70% of those 15,000 are here in an undocumented status. It's probably more than that. If the immigration conversation does not affect us, we are often unwilling to enter it. And so what will it take for us to feel identity with the struggle? to feel compassion, to feel empathy. I challenge you to have a conversation with someone who has been here for 10, 12, 15, 18 years. They have literally done everything that they possibly can to be here legally and there is no pathway for them to achieve citizenship. Our system is broken. I know that this is a highly politicized issue, but this is an issue of justice, and it is an issue that affects the Quad Cities, and it is an issue that affects us as Heritage Church. It's not a Vita Nueva problem. It's a problem that we as Heritage Church must be willing to enter into with them, and to be a voice, and to be an advocate, and to be educated, and to be with so much of this comes back to Imago Dei. It comes back to our ability to see and live into the image of God that is in people. A few years ago, I was given the opportunity to go to India. And um, the trip was not uh, highly structured. I made a decision, even going, that I was going to be very open to what God was asking me to do in the trip. And so, as opportunities came along, I would prayerfully just say yes, because I felt like, okay, Lord, I I don't want to be, I don't want this to be my agenda, I want this to be your agenda, and it has proven to be one of the most formative experiences of my life. I had one particular experience where I was invited with a friend who does ministry in the red light district of Pune, India. She's been there for several years. It's a city of about eight million people. The red light district has hundreds of thousands of girls and young women who are literally in a in just blocks. Um, it, it's many city blocks, but there's definitely, you know when you're in the red light district. And so she asked me to come in. She asked me to come in during the day. I felt like, okay, I think I can do that because it won't be a time where it will be active. There won't be uh, customers in there. And so I think I can do that. So we got there about one o'clock and I'm thinking, I'm going in here to, to, be an encouragement, to be a blessing to these girls. Like, I mean, I felt so inadequate. You just have no idea how small you can feel and how humbled and how um, overwhelmed. But I was was just trying to be willing. So we entered in in the brothels, and you basically go in one, and then you go down and you go into another one. And I mean, I didn't see daylight for, it felt like days, because we would just go from one to the other. And here's what happened to me. Every brothel that I went into, the woman, the madam, who ran that brothel would immediately come over to me and and take me into a room or want to just spend time with me, hold my hand, touch my hair, hug me, have a conversation with me. And I was like, Lord, this is not why I am here. What is happening here? And I started to get angry. And then I got even more angry because about three o'clock there was a festival that was happening that day, and whatever God they were worshiping that day, part of it was that the men would go to prostitutes as part of their worship to the God. And so I started noticing men coming into the brothels, and I was like, I did not sign up for this, Lord. You're gonna have to like, I mean, I'm a small person, but I was mad. I was like, I'm pretty sure I could strangle that person or bash some heads together. I mean, I was at my limit, let me tell you. And so I think there's a, there's a place for righteous anger. And so I think that was okay part of that. I think the part where I was directing it at people and wanting to do bodily harm, maybe not so much. Um, but, but so here's what happened. So this kept happening, right, with the madams. And I was like really frustrated. And, and so we were coming back through towards the end of the day. I was exhausted, just totally wrung out. And the first brothel that we went into, the lady saw us walking by. And she's, she was crying and she's calling out her window and asking for us to come up there. And I did not want to go. I was like, I I can't. But I was like, and the Lord was like, remember you said yes. You said that you would say yes. I'm like, all right, yes. So we go up there, and she points at me and says, I want you to pray for me. And I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to do it. And God said, you said yes to me. And I started to pray for her, and I started to cry. because the reality was I had lost the image of God. I I couldn't see it in her anymore. I couldn't see the inherent value and dignity and beauty and her need for community. And he has used that to impress upon me that we will only be willing to step into the injustice when we can see the image of God in people. And so if we have to look around us and see image of God, Image of God, image of God, image of God. It is the only calibrating thing, it is the only calibrating way that I know to go through this life where there is so much injustice is to see image of God, image of God. So what? I know that this has been overwhelming. We have seriously like gone to the high dive and jumped way in deep. I understand that. And I want us to end on, I don't want you to walk out of here and feel overwhelmed or like, oh my gosh, what just happened to me? Like a truck ran over me. I want us to feel like there are some hopeful things that we get to do as Christ followers who are sent as ambassadors of this restorative justice message of the gospel. And so here's the first thing. The North American church worships the God of comfort and security. We have got to stop doing that. And we have got to start to live radically and say no to fear and apathy. The Holocaust Museum in New York City has an inscription on the outside and it says be not a victim be not a perpetrator but above all else be not a bystander we need to seek him as we seek justice we need to pursue his heart for justice not engagement with an issue but his heart for justice we need to be willing to see the need we've got to ask god to adjust our eyes and open our heart And the last one I get super excited about. It is to seek the shalom of our city. To seek the good of our city. Jeremiah 29, it's a passage we're familiar with because we usually start at verse 11 and we go to about verse 13, right? And verse 11 is like, for I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, to give you a hope and a future. And we're like, yes. Okay, but Jeremiah 29, it's actually pretty grim what's happening in Jeremiah 29. The nation of Israel is being sent into exile, and this is the words of God, and God is saying to his people who are being sent by him, they're not being taken into captivity, he is sending them into exile. But seek the welfare of the city, seek the shalom, that state of justice and peace and flourishing of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. What if we sought the welfare, the shalom of the Quad Cities in this way? A place where, by the way, did you know that we are just strangers here? We are aliens. We are here in exile. We are just passing through. This world is not our home. And so if we lived here in such a way that we thought, God is sending me into exile here, but he is doing it in a way that he's asking me to plead for the Quad Cities, to plead for the good of the city, in the same way that he wants to bless my welfare, it's tied up in what happens around me. Here's the question, how will you seek to live sent more fully? Today, tomorrow, in the weeks and months ahead? Because living sent does not just happen. Living scent is full of the choices that we make on an each and every day basis. We live the message of the gospel when we intervene with compassion in a broken and messy world to bring justice and the hope of reconciliation. There's a prayer that I've included in your worship folder, and it's a prayer that was prayed at one of the justice conferences that I went to, and I've kind of tweaked it to kind of fit our context a little bit, and I want to encourage you to join with other members of our Heritage Church family as we pray this for the Quad Cities where we have been sent, where we live. This is our mission field, and, and let's just see what God does as we earnestly seek him as we pray this prayer together. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would lead us to hear the cry of the vulnerable and oppressed, that you would lead us to care for the weak and needy and to see others as our own brothers and sisters. Help us appreciate goodness, to love well and not hide our hypocrisy with rhetoric. Let us embrace justice and compassion. Grant us humility and supply us with enough faith to give our lives away. Bless us with strength when we grow weary. Lord, let the sweet knowledge of your love fuel our commitment, inform our passions, stir our gratitude for the message of the gospel, and help us be ambassadors of hope and healing in the world. We pray, we beg, we plead with you for the shalom of our city, that transformation would start in our own hearts for you and your glory. We pray this in the strong and mighty name of our Savior Jesus, whom we love. Amen.